As a listener to Intelligent Medicine, you know that fish oil provides the vital omega-3s, EPA, and DHA that support your cardiovascular, brain, nerve, vision, immune system, joint, and skin health, as well as your inflammatory balance. My preferred fish oil brand is Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions, including soft gels, liquid, and enteric-coated options in a variety of potencies. Vital Nutrients even offers a high-performance and nutrient-dense vegan omega supplement option. Vital Nutrients line of ultra-pure omega-3 solutions are held to the most rigorous quality standards in the industry, ensuring maximum freshness, purity, and potency. I use Vital Nutrients myself and recommend it to my patients. For more information and to order, call 888-328-9992. That's 888-328-9992. Or go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co for the Vital Nutrients line of Ultra Pure Omega-3 Solutions. Welcome back to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. We're talking all things melatonin with Deanna Minnick. Uh, she is the author of a wonderful paper, very comprehensive review on the subject of melatonin, what it is, how it works, uh, what it's good for, uh, and potentially some ideas on how to take it. And uh, so in part one, we, we talked all about different applications. In, in part two, I want to focus on some practicalities, you know, uh, how to take it, when to take it, how much to take, uh, but also address uh, the elephant in the room because uh, there's a lot of articles, uh, an example of which is uh, yesterday's Wall Street Journal article on uh, uh, November 16th. Uh, Parents are giving kids melatonin to help them sleep. Doctors have concerns. And uh, even more lurid headlines uh, melatonin poisonings in kids jump 530% in 10 years, according to MedPage. That's a publication for health professionals. And so, you know, it seems to me there's a little bit of an agenda behind this, which is to suggest that supplements are unregulated and we need to do something about it because uh, melatonin is wreaking havoc. Um, my conclusion is that, yes, there were reports to poison control, but, you know, sometimes parents get worried because there are a lot of melatonin gummies and candies out there, and then Junior gets into the stash and uh, eats a bunch of them, and then parents freak out, although Junior seems fine, and they call poison control, and, you know, 99% of the time, it, it's all fine, you know, it's managed at home, maybe Junior takes a nap, but, uh, you know, there's no dire consequences of that. Uh, however, there, there are some concerns about uh, melatonin with kids because, as you point out in your article, uh, kids make plenty of melatonin already. It's only in, you know, as we age or if we get sick that our melatonin production declines, right? That's right. Um, you know, in the article, there's the graph and it's showing that how, you know, like the first three months of life, melatonin levels are low. And so typically if the child is breastfed, they're getting melatonin through the mother's milk. And then eventually uh, it starts to go up pretty dramatically in young childhood. So those early formative years, our melatonin goes up and it's the highest it's ever going to be in our whole lives is when we're kids. And now, we sleep we, a ton. And we just and we do sleep a ton. Right. <laughs> yeah, Eighteen hours, right? I remember that as well. Yeah. Like, gosh, yeah, ten to twelve hours. Uh, and my niece, who's eight, you know, same thing. She just sleeps. She's yeah. no problem with sleep whatsoever. But you know, as we enter into puberty, 
um, those levels start to decline a little bit. You know, they're still relatively high, but then precipitously they start to drop decade by decade so that by the time we're in our 50s, whereas that's where I'm at, you know, they're, they're starting to, to really be, be bottomed out. They're not totally bottomed out, but then by the 60s and 70s, they're flatlined. So that tells me that, uh, yeah, kids and all of these different media releases and CDC reports and such, um, you know, should we be punting over to melatonin supplements for kids that don't sleep? I don't think so. Um, I, I don't personally like all of these gummy and chewable formats because I do think that it presents. Yeah, yeah they're an attractive nuisance. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, they're enticing. Yeah. They're very enticing. And what else is in there? So here's what I think. So I, I have been in the dietary supplement field for some time. Uh, and one of the things that comes to my mind from a formulation standpoint is how does that melatonin interact with that hygroscopic matrix of a gummy? Like, is that mm-hmm. even stable? Mm-hmm. And you probably are aware. In fact, I think you reported on this on one of your other podcasts about how there was a Canadian study in which they took about 30 different products off the shelf. Yeah. And they found that they didn't meet label claim. Yeah. So they can have higher levels, like triple digit high level percentages mm-hmm. of melatonin. So what are we actually getting? Well, they can underperform or they can overperform. I mean, it's, it's, that's the problem. It's not, uh, like, yes. uh, prescription medication. And some of the companies, frankly, are fly by net companies. The companies that you and I rely on when we prescribe to our patients, uh, generally Very are pretty different. scrupulous about, uh, assaying yeah. products to make sure of purity and, uh, potency. Well, purity is another uh, issue because there are contaminants sometimes associated in melatonin products, right? And you can actually get uh, too much of levels of serotonin, actually, which uh, that's a whole different thing, right? So you you are so informed, and I'm so glad that you bring that up because that's something I didn't even realize until we did this paper. There is a different publication, which was published in Molecules in 2018, in which the authors detailed 13 different compounds that synthetic melatonin can be contaminated with potentially. And one of the things I also didn't realize was that 99% of the melatonin on the market is synthetic. And so what I even did, Ron, was I went away from the scientific literature and I started to look at the melatonin patents just to see how this stuff is made. Mm -hmm. And it was very eye-opening to see how you know, starting with some kind of chemical compound and then all of these different reagents, many of them petrochemical derived, Mm -hmm. multiple steps, you know, adding to pollution. One of the things that that article pointed out, the molecules, one that I mentioned, is the high degree of potential pollution of these, um, you know, just what is spewing out. So like, may not be good for people, may not be good for the planet. And so that's where enter in my interest, which is plants. I'm a plant lover, you know, ever since graduate school studying carotenoids and working with Dr. Bland, doing lots of work on phytochemicals. So one of the things that really piqued my interest with melatonin was the phytomelatonin, the plant-based melatonin, Mm -hmm. because we tend to find melatonin in higher amounts in the reproductive parts of plants. Like It's in foods. It's actually in a lot of vegetarian foods. foods. It's in in minute amounts, right. Very minute, like we're talking nanogram, picogram amounts per gram. So, you know, you'd have to have like thousands of tart cherries to, mm-hmm. to get yeah. a physiological yeah. dose. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's ubiquitous, which tells us that if it's redundant in nature, it's necessary. It's, it's an ancestral molecule that I think 
has helped us in our ability to survive in our environment. But long story short, yes, like, look, when you start doing the work on, okay, what's out there in terms of melatonin and all of the different sources, because I don't think most people realize that melatonin could be contaminated, it's synthetically derived, and that there's even an option for a plant cell matrix derived kind of melatonin. And there was another study, and we can go through this, where they compared head-to-head that plant cell matrix melatonin versus a synthetic melatonin. And the the phytomelatonin outperformed the synthetic significantly, like in an anti-inflammatory activity, antioxidant, etc., now, you advise a lot of supplement companies, uh, or have in the past. Uh, are you recommending now that they source their melatonin from plant sources rather than the synthesis, the synthetic uh, melatonin that's produced in a big chemical vat? 100%. Now, the only thing that is a little bit of a marketing thing that I think people need to get savvy on is that a phytomelatonin in the market could actually have a starter compound like corn, something corn derived, you know, something that would be called a vegetable or a plant. But then it's also subject to the same chemical processing that a synthetic melatonin would be subject to. So it's not, you know, it's a little little bit of green greenwashing kind of thing. You know, it's like it's that's right. It's sourced from plants, but it's still heavily chemically uh, altered. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I I think in, in, you know, in the paper, I talk about phytomelatonin and if it is, not extracted, but just derived from the plant in its whole food form, you can get a lot of other things in there aside from the bioidentical melatonin. Like one of the things that, you know, my my master's degree was on carotenoids. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are 700 carotenoids in nature. The colorful and pigments by way, in plants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're what make plants pretty. You yeah. know, the, the red, the orange, the yellow, even some of the green. So one of the things that you can find in phytomelatonin, a specific one, at least that I can speak to, is beta carotene, lutein, and even zeaxanthin. And lutein and zeaxanthin well, localize the that, That's actually a, a beneficial additive. And that will help to protect against blue light to the yeah, retina, right? Yeah. Like, so it's actually wow. like you're getting two things in one, uh, you know. It's, it's like just, nature's blue blocker glasses, right? Which is. Oh, uh, that's good. Right. Uh, that is very good. Yes, okay. it is. I, I'll share the trademark on that with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so no, it, but and that actually brings us to the point uh, to just to discuss uh, that as a lifestyle measure yes. to uh, enhance melatonin production because you know there's a lot of talk about you know blue blocker glasses. Do they work? Yep. Do they make sense? Yep. Is there science behind that? Yes, there is science behind it. We had to review that as part of this whole paper because, you know, it's it's talked about there uh, out there on social media. Long story short, yes, they can protect uh, from the, the light suppressive effects. So I do think that getting blue light blocking glasses is a good idea if you're going to be on a computer, mm-hmm. at least to somewhat biohack your environment. Yeah. Now, the well, only thing is that my iPad has a night setting, though, you know, I, there's a night that, setting right, that the, automatically the kicks in. I've set it at 10. Yeah. So that, you know, because I, I tend to read, I read in bed. Uh, yeah, I know it's bad, but, you know, sleep hygiene. <laughs> I have no problem. I have no problem falling asleep. Yeah, it sounds uh, like you sleep well. So yeah. it, it's good. But, you know, so, but at least I'm not getting a big dollop of blue light into right. my pint, into my photoreceptors which go to my pineal gland and uh, suppress the melatonin right before bed right so that, that's that, right that's good 
Yeah, no, you're, you're really helping your eyes. Uh, in, you know, in this day and age, I'm sure you've seen it, but there's so many ocular diseases and conditions happening now with eyes. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's just people are on technology. They're on it for a long time and they're on it late at night. And this can be very damaging to the retina. So, mm-hmm. you know, our eyes are part of our nervous system. I, I treasure my gift of sight. And, um, you know, it's just amazing to see well, all these different conditions. You are a very visual person. And in addition to, to being a very prolific uh, artist, sci- I mean, author, scientist, researcher, uh, you're a wonderful artist and your artwork reflects your, I, I, you have a, I, I think you see science in color, you know, and in, in terms of. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, wow. Well, you thank so, you for you that insight. Sort of a, I, a, a scientific synesthesia, you know, where uh, yeah. I think your affinity for, for color matches your affinity for, you know, the science that underlies uh, the colors in nature. Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I, I, I do think that color is a big deal. I think that color can be very healing and color is all throughout nature. You know, getting that full spectrum light, which, you know, we see as sunlight, but it's really comprised of the rainbow variety of different wavelengths, right? And all of those wavelengths, I think, are helping us on many different levels. So if we just segment and we just have that blue light at night, you know, that's that's disruptive because that's not in mm-hmm. congruence with, with again, nature. natural, uh, nature. you know, yeah. sort of paleo sleep and paleo lifestyle. Uh, coming back to the subject of kids, though, and I'm sorry to yeah. keep jumping around. Um, so there is, however, and, and presumably you're a big fan of the Townsend letter. I have in front of me uh, one of my favorite columns from there, uh, Dr. Alan Gaby's literature review and commentary. Oh, yeah. And he highlights, he highlights an article there uh, entitled Bellatonin Improves Sleep in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder. Now, yeah. maybe in principle, we don't want to, you know, just, uh, you know, if you have a cranky kid, you just want to kind of shut him up, you know, just give him a big dollop of melatonin to knock them out, you know, like a knockout drop kind of thing. Cause, uh, you know, you want to watch, uh, Netflix and kids annoying you. That may be a frivolous use of, of melatonin. But if you've got a, a child with autism where they have very, very terrible circadian rhythm problems and, you know, they're up all night screaming sometimes and, and you want to do something to help without putting them on, you know, powerful sleep medications, you know, benzodiazepines, uh, Xanax, Valium, you know, et cetera. Uh, it, do you think it's an option? Because what they're saying here, and and this kind of goes to your uh, your principle of less is more, because you, you put yeah. that out of the article. They found that the lower dose, one milligram, was nearly as effective as the higher dose, four milligram. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So you're calling out two different points that are really important. And one is that there may be indications for which to give melatonin supplements to children. There can be specific conditions. And two that we identify in the paper would be exactly what you're saying, autistic spectrum disorder and uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Mm-hmm. So those two conditions may warrant melatonin supplementation in kids. So that's the, the first point. So it's not like we should just, uh, you know, just write it off entirely for the pediatric population. I do think that we can be safe, use good high quality forms of melatonin for kids and use it judiciously under certain timeframes, right? So that, you know, we can, they're not on it forever, right? Because we don't know about the long-term effects on puberty and so right. that has there been There may be developmental it, effects because know. we know that in hormonal cancers, there seems to be a benefit as part of that benefit uh, due right. to a hormonal impact. And for example, uh, it's known that uh, night shift uh, nurses 
are more yes. prone to breast cancer breast and there cancer may be a melatonin connection there. Well, if we, in, you know, maybe the effect is beneficial in adults, but maybe it has some ineffable as yet undiscovered effects on uh, childhood uh, endocrine uh, and reproductive development. Correct. Yeah, we just don't know. We don't have that long-term data. So I would say to use it uh, short-term, lowest dose, look for remediation of symptoms, U- use it under a healthcare practitioner's guidance so that it can be closely monitored. I think that that is, you know, we just have to be cautious with, with children because we just don't know. Right. As far as the dose, though, yeah. I, yeah. I do want to speak to that because we probably have a lot of clinicians listening as part of your audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think that the dose makes the poison or the dose, dose makes the, the healing uh, happen. So when we look at some of the earlier studies done by Dr. Wortman at MIT, you know, I consider him as part of this lineage of melatonin researchers who has really contributed a lot. There was a study that he was uh, connected to way back, uh, gosh, what was it, like early 2000s, like 2001, in which they did a study with multiple doses. They looked at 0.3 milligrams, they looked at 3 milligrams, and even 0.1 milligrams. And what they found out of each of those, the really low, the middle, or the high, is that the middle, the 0.3 milligrams, had the best data, had the best results mm-hmm. from the people in the in the study. And if you look at the curve of melatonin and how it comes down, you know, as I mentioned, like in the 50s, it starts to bottom out. Having that repletion, much like we might be thinking about bioidentical hormone repletion in women going through perimenopause with estrogen, progesterone, we're looking at repletion. We're not looking at supraphysiological right. mm-hmm. levels. We're just looking at repletion. Yeah. So, you know, sticking, going low, going slow, and uh, shortest duration needed unless, you know, if it is for aging, then obviously there's going to be a little bit more in in terms of maintenance. But, you know, it's very interesting to me that, you know, more is not always better. We kind of get in our mind like, oh, wow, melatonin is everywhere. It's so important. And I can't imagine a life without melatonin. But, you know, perhaps you don't need as much as you you might think you need. Mm-hmm. And and of course, Ron, as you know, melatonin is subject to phase one and phase two metabolic detoxification. So there has to be a personalized element here because some people, I know that you and Carolyn Gazella, I listened to your podcast with her on this and, uh, you know, really speaking to the paradoxical effect. Why do some people not get the same effect from melatonin? Mm-hmm. Well, I I chalk that up. Some people get a a backwards effect. You know, they actually, uh, it activates them or they fall asleep for a while and then they wake up like a shot. You know, they can't sleep anymore. You know, and you know, here's my theory on that. We know that most of melatonin goes through uh, cytochrome P450-1A2, which is the same Mm -hmm. phase one enzyme that caffeine goes through. So people, this is my theory. Yeah. But it differs uh, I'm from person to person. Yeah, right. It differs from person to person. And, you know, if you're a person who could drink coffee late at night and, you, you know, you can have a double espresso and you get no effect from that, you can go right to sleep. You might be a fast metabolizer of melatonin, mm-hmm. which means that you really need to monitor when you take your dose because levels peak within that 30 to 60 minute window, you know, average time, 41 minutes. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you may need to take it closer to bedtime because as you rapidly metabolize it, you may also need a different dose. Uh, so it just kind of depends on the kinetics. It may also right. depend on what you eat before bedtime. You know, there could be a lot of different factors. But 
we can't forget that melatonin, much like other hormones, is subject to metabolic detoxification, which is under the control of personalized gene right. variants. And even influenced by the medications you're taking, because medications right. can impact there's drug nutrient interactions. Some That's medications right. accelerate the detox. I think it's uh, grapefruit uh, slows the detox, uh, that pathway, uh, whereas there are other things that accelerate the uh, the uh, and and in and in women, uh, it may be that the detoxification of estrogen uh, gets in the way of the detoxification of melatonin. They have higher levels for longer. I mean, I'm just speculating here. Well, we do know that uh, phase one and phase two. So when it goes through phase one, so it goes through primarily one A two, but then there's also one A one, one B one, and one B one is the is the one enzyme that does metabolize estrogen and hydroxylates estrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also sulfated as part of phase two. So sulfur is a main conjugate of you know kind of that whole pathway, and that is also shared by some of the other hormones. So to to your point, which is valid, like if you have a high hormone load, um, it may require more in the way of facilitating movement through these pathways, and there could be some implications. Can, you, can, send, also be some, can you send me yeah. a chip with that information that I can insert into my brain because I, you know, I, I kind of... <laughs> it's actually all in the paper. We, oh, okay. we, we looked a bit more at contraindications. We even looked at combinations with certain nutrients. Like one of the things that I learned is like having vitamin C... Uh, with melatonin uh, seems to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Seems to be a good thing, right? So mm -hmm. there are, there's a certain amount of studies looking at some combinations like glutathione. Synergy versus antagonism, in other words. Like that's what right. Well that's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, so what about the time release uh, products? Uh, does that make any sense for some people? Because uh, it, intuitively it seems to make sense because if melatonin is short acting, you want it to act throughout the night. And a lot of people don't have so much trouble falling asleep. It's that they have early morning wake up. And then they, you know, toss and turn at like, uh, you know, three in the morning and they can't get uh, adequate sleep. Is, is there any information on the efficacy of those time release formulas? I think it's plausible in terms of delaying some of the uh, activity or at least extending it through the night in a more balanced way for certain individuals that are maybe fast metabolizers or may have this paradoxical effect. Um, the, the only downside I see of time release is... What is making it release in a more delayed fashion? Mm -hmm. Like many times there are phthalates, parabens, mm -hmm. certain things added to Waxes, that concoction that I like don't that. always yeah. love. Yeah. So I, I just think about that. And it, again, this has to be in, in part of that, you know, it might be just regulating the dose to be even lower uh, or even, um, you know, just just changing that a little bit. But, you know, there could be a case for time release in, in certain cases. It's just I often query, uh, you know, what is added to it to make it time release. I don't like a lot of those agents. Some of them mm -hmm. are can and, be toxic. And one person's time release may be another person's... Uh, uh, accelerated you know, release. Accelerated release. Or uh, there, people have different transit times. People have different digestive abilities. That's right. Uh, I'm not sure how That's they right. get it right for, you know, like one size fits all. Uh, so, yeah. uh, and, and or, you know, worst case scenario is that uh, somebody swallows the pill and it goes, clink in the toilet and you know none of it gets released so none of it gets, well that's right so having some kind of a like again a plant cell matrix kind of embedded material might allow for a more delayed release and a more natural release you know some of those time release formulations based on what i know about formulation is sometimes they require stomach acid mm -hmm. in order to change the dynamics and if you think if you're taking this right before bedtime 
how much stomach acid will you have? Because, you know, typically the acid is released with a meal, right? So I don't know. There are just a lot of different variables as it relates to that sustained or time release. I'm not discounting it completely, but I just think that it, they're just there's more underneath the hood of looking into those. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask you a question because, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm traveling a lot these days and I plan to take a trip to uh, Lithuania, which we talked a little bit I about. I know. Because you have some Lithuanian ancestry as well. And, you know, it's kind of a, <laughs> you know, like an ancestral, you know, uh, ancestry tour, you know, to kind of look at the place of my That's origins. Uh, but uh, uh, it's a six hour plane trip. And, you know, it's controversial as to whether. Uh, Melatonin really is efficacious against jet lag, and it seems to make a difference whether you go east or whether you go west. Uh, I get kind of discombobulated, especially as I get older. It's harder to adapt. You know, that first day is mm-hmm. kind of murder. Uh, is there something about the timing of melatonin? Should I begin taking it before the trip, during the, the flight? Uh, should I take it to anticipate the time at my destination six hours uh, later? Uh, what does the science say on that? Yeah. So what you want to do, let's imagine you're going from New York to Lithuania is, um, especially that's, that's more than three time zones, right? So, uh, there it's, can really be some circadian five or rhythm. Six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you get to that, to, to Lithuania, uh, to stay awake as long as you can until it gets to bedtime and then to take a dose of melatonin that is in the neighborhood between three and six milligrams. Mm-hmm. You know, something, I don't, I don't know your kinetics, but I'm just giving you a general range. Like this right. is much so higher. Than high, higher dose than you might ordinarily use. Okay. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. We're not doing repletion here. We're doing like a reset. Like we're pushing a big button of reset yeah. biochemically to get you on that Lithuanian circadian mm-hmm. rhythm <laughs> right, right. so you need more for that typically so you mm-hmm. would take it right before bedtime mm-hmm. um and hopefully within about three days like if you did that for three consecutive days upon being there in lithuania mm-hmm. it should shake out as is being you know where you can equilibrate then, better then maybe i can but, revert you know, to my normal dose which is like one or you know one to three yeah, 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 and then to come down to your your regular dose. That's mm-hmm. right, that's mm-hmm. right. But you know, to take it once you're actually there on site and right before bedtime, when you actually want mm-hmm. that to be seen by the pineal gland and kind of you, you want that impetus, right? You're not going right. to take it when it's broad daylight. You have to wait. You know, and I, I traveled extensively even with uh, Dr. Jeff Bland, and I, you know, he really taught me like just you got to forge forward in that time zone yeah, as best you can. It's if hard. you arrive when it's light uh, and it's really your nighttime, the, the more you just have to push yourself as best you can. I, It'll just reset your rhythm. I always try to do that, but man, that first day is kind of murder because I'm walking it's around. It's hard. Like it's hard. Yeah. I'm waiting for, you know, the first opportunity to go to sleep uh, after a rough plane flight. And uh, yeah, but that's the idea is that you don't want to keep you know, yourself busy. Yeah, Keep exactly, yourself busy exactly. during that time. And then exactly. just have your melatonin uh, three to six grams. It sounds like you're on the higher side. So probably that six milligrams mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. bedtime. Does it work going west? Or does it pay to take it going west? Because I think the, the research is more robust on uh, ad- advancing the time when you go to a, a, a later time zone, I think. That's yeah. correct. If you're traveling east or you go over um, three to five time zones, typically it's, it's best. But... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, gauge for yourself. I mean, I just got back from Cyprus and I, you know, coming back west, um, I did it. it. It did take me a little bit of, t- I don't know, it, it just feels different. Like when I'm going to travel to mm-hmm. a place versus coming home, when I'm coming right. home, I kind of feel like I can be a little bit 
you know, looser about my my sleep regimen and such. So it just depends on personal preference. But yes, much of the studies and, and in fact, there was a Cochrane review that looked at a number of trials and they did look at traveling east. And they're very conservative. Of- they're very skeptical. They're they're you know, generally right, they dismissive are. They of, are. of a lot of therapies, yeah. even even you know, skeptical of things like statins and PSAs. So they <laughs> they're not all in on a lot of things that are popular. That's right. Yeah, no, that's true. So hopefully you'll have an easy time uh, accommodating to the Lithuanian time zone. Indeed. And finally, uh, what I really like about your paper is that you talk not just about, you know, taking a pill, because this is an appealing paradigm for a lot of people is, you know, sleeping pills. You know, I reach for something and, you know, take a pill if you have an ill. Uh, But you talk about a melatonin lifestyle and you actually create kind of a pyramid like the food pyramid. And the base of the pyramid is is based on uh, exercise, uh, proper diet. uh, And then, you know, you talk a little bit about uh, light exposure and sleep hygiene. And the apex of the period, the top, you know, sort of reserved as a kind of a last resort. Uh, is taking melatonin, right? That's right. I mean, you know, just like you said, Zeitgeibers, you know, what sets time throughout our day? It's physical activity, it's meals, it's light exposure. So we need those, those time setters throughout the day. And if we don't have those, how do we override that massive signal just with supplemental melatonin all the time. I think we have to look deeper at the root cause. We need to be looking at our diets, you know, even those blue light protective nutrients, like I was talking about, lutein, zeaxanthin, so eating more plants, especially the green, yellow variety, getting protein, you know, and and just examining the light quality. You know, it, it's, um, so it's going into the, the darker months here where I live in the Pacific Northwest, just like it is for you. Yeah. And, you know, I've even been evaluating the lights in That's our where home, Starbucks like, started. That's worse, and there's a good reason for that. That's right. That's yeah. right. All the darkness, the gloominess, the yeah. seasonal effect. I actually do quite well with it. I mean, maybe I'm a just naturally high melatonin producer, well, and I'm all you're good part, with it. You're part Lithuanian, so that's that maybe one. Yeah. You're a creature of the darkness is. from the Baltic. I'm regions. a creature of the darkness. I, I get most of my creative inspiration in the dark. Maybe melatonin yeah. supplementation. The melatonin in the body is you know connected to creativity. I don't know, but that's when I get a lot of my um, inspiration too. Mm-hmm. Well, the pineal is the third eye, after all, so maybe there's something to it. You got it. Rene yeah. Descartes, seat of the soul, is what he called uh, the pineal gland. Well, he, almo- even, he uh, almost nailed it. It's actually the seat of melatonin production, but close, no cigar. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, we could go on and on about this, but I, I refer people to your article. You know, if you're a health professional especially, it's a great article, and it appears in the journal uh, Nutrients, right? Nutrients, yeah. And... So it's entitled, Is Melatonin the Next Vitamin D? Review of Emerging Science, Clinical Uses, Safety, and Dietary Supplements. Uh, you're the lead author, uh, along with some people I know, including uh, Dr. Corey Schuler. Uh, so congratulations to you on that article. And so more resources. You know, you got a lot of uh, ways that people can find out more about you and about your works, uh, some wonderful books. Tell us about those briefly. Well, uh, you know, my website is deannaminick.com, and I think that's the hub for everything. My Let's social media, it. my blog. It's M-I-N-I-C-H. Uh, you got it. So it's okay. Deanna, D-E-A-N-N-A, M-I-N-I-C-H.com. So it's just my name. And then, uh, you know, the article, I, I, I wrote it with clinicians in mind because there's no sense of just publishing on science for science sake without having that translation is how I see it. At least that's what I feel like. I can contribute. So the article, you know, we even paid to make it open access for people. A lot of science is locked up. 
Yeah. So I wanted it to be I available. You know, I hate the paywalls. There, there are paywalls. And, you know, science to me is like, that's public health knowledge. Like, we need to get that out. So anyway, it's available to clinicians. Please access it. You know, we created so many tables and graphics. And I just was trying to figure out, like, okay, we need to make this digestible for everybody. So give us feedback. Email me if you want um, at Deanna at DeannaMinnick.com. Happy to see what your questions are, see if I can't help. But uh, yeah, that, that's what how to find me. What your books for the public? Because they're very uh, user-friendly and they're great primers on nutrition. Yeah, thanks. Um, so yes, I do have a number of books. And uh, one of them is called Whole Detox, like W-H-O-L-E, like the whole self looking at a very holistic approach. And basically, it's just uh, it's a 21-day program to have more color in one's diet uh, for a variety of different reasons, psychological and physiological. And then I have another book called The Rainbow Diet. I have a bunch mm-hmm. other, uh, of other books. I have a total of six, but those right. are my I think The my Rainbow Diet books. is really your, your signature work, and it's beautifully illustrated, The Rainbow Diet, yeah. yeah, you know, it's very funny some people even call me like the rainbow doctor Mm -hmm. rainbow is kind of like my my thing even my instagram is all rainbow fied yeah color is you know back to what you were saying i mean color is a powerful way that we connect through nature and we become inspired and i feel like you know knowledge is good but when we marry that with inspiration it it holds you know and we can create some significant behavior change Mm-hmm. And it uh, certainly offers us a teachable moment about uh, the relationship between nature and science. So, yeah, good stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, great discussion. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Deanna, for you know sharing some of your valuable time with us. And uh, we'll meet again on uh, the conference circuit. I'll tell you all about uh, Lithuania. <laughs> You'll be at IHS? Uh, I will be. Yes. Oh, you're, so you're coming to New York. So great. Yeah. That's I will a, be. I'll be in for, your neck of the woods. Yeah. For for our uh, uh, health practitioners, uh, big conference coming up at the end of February. It's traditional in New York, sort of in that uh, coldest, uh, darkest time of the year uh, where <laughs> melatonin levels surge. Uh, you're going to be speaking at uh, the Integrative uh, Health uh, Symposium, IHS. Uh, February, New York City. It's kind of a signature event for New York in the field of integrated yeah. medicine. So great. I'm looking forward to your talk. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.